Hello and welcome to a podcast-only edition of Culture File with a familiar voice popping up in a slightly unfamiliar place. During the week we heard from Jennifer Walsh about her new position as Professor of Composition at Oxford University, but we talked about many other things during the conversation. So this time we have an XXL version of that conversation, touching upon, among other things, the composer's experience of the pandemic, her long-standing interest in AI and her her recent release, a late anthology of early music, in which she uses AI and her own voice to create odd remakes of early music and some musical confusion. How's your pandemic been? We've been following it quite closely in the in your diary of a plague year. Um, I would say my pandemic has been very similar to most people's in that it's been both extremely long and extremely short at the same time. Um, very very boring but also spine curdlingly stressful and exciting in a negative way you know um so i think i've i've sort of over the last few weeks because i've been traveling again i've got to experience very different uh like the norwegian approach the french approach the german approach the italian approach so i sort of feel like i got to live in multiple possible futures uh, from the Norwegian approach where life is basically back to normal and you're in a restaurant, there isn't even hand sanitizer, you know, at the, <gasps> at the till, I know, um, through to, you know, Italy where it was temperature checks and, you know, getting your vaccination pass scanned anytime you went anywhere. You weren't ever allowed to sit next to somebody at a concert. There always had to be a space between you and the person next to you so I sort of see all these different countries trying to figure out their way forward with it so that was interesting but you know like everybody else thank god for the vaccine you know thank thank god like that there's some there's something that because this time last year it, it felt very dark you know and so thank god there's been some things which have shifted a little bit and your own family was you know had people among it who were particularly susceptible yeah, I, I think, you know, like most people, we, we had two people in particular in the family that we were very concerned about, uh, particularly because one of them has COPD. So that, you know, right from the get go, their their doctor was saying, you know, this could be probably will be fatal if you get it. So that was terrifying in the beginning. But it's sort of, you know, my family read prepper uh prepper uh books for fun you know are are interested in how they would survive beyond the nuclear apocalypse you know uh, they built my sister built a hugging wall out of agricultural gloves the sort you use for when a cow is giving birth and and plastic so members of the family could hug one another everybody was very resourceful and made sure that people were okay and uh we're just you know we're just really really thankful i mean really thankful for the vaccine you know and and what that's made possible for a lot of people because the one thing I have to say I hadn't seen older people going on holiday uh, for 18 months and when I was in Venice uh, last week I saw elderly people on holiday and you thought how different that must be to, to feel safe to travel for people. What were you performing by the way? In Venice I was doing a piece called Is It Cool to Try Hard Now and then a an Italian vocal ensemble called Evo Ensemble were doing uh, two strange artificial intelligence covers I had done of some John Dowland and other uh, early music uh, tracks. So uh, yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Was the sensation of performing any different? 
a bit unfamiliar, I guess, at least. It's definitely unfamiliar, but it, then it feels completely familiar because because all of a sudden there's all this extra energy in the room. It's not you in front of your webcam, which I hated. I have to say, I did not enjoy doing live stream performances. Um, so all of a sudden it's other people. And so you get this big rush of energy, but there's also part of you that you're just so happy to be back on a stage that you just feel very grateful and you feel very excited by the energy in the room. And I, I keep remembering last October, I did a piece called The Side of an Investigation, which is a piece for orchestra that was originally commissioned by the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland. It's a big piece for my voice and orchestra. And I got to do it in Lithuania on October 30th last year. And it was the last live gig I did, you know, before all the lockdowns started again. And I remember just before I went on stage, I was talking to the conductor, Anu Tali, and, you know, and I said to her, I know this is a big deal, but I also sort of don't care how it goes because I know this is the last time I'll be on stage for a long time and I get to be on stage with an orchestra and I'm so excited. And she said, I feel the same way. And that's quite strange because normally, you know, you're trying to do your absolute best and you're nervous and you're really concerned about making sure it's as good a performance as possible. But there was sort of a revelry in the fact that we got to do it at all. And so that I had that feeling again the last few weeks. You're just so happy to be with other people because you don't know what these pieces are made of until you see them in front of an audience, until you witness it in front of an audience. And so I'd really miss that, that sort of completion that you have. I don't mean that the piece is finished, but just that the circuit is completed when there's an audience there. The Dallin pieces were from that uh, album you released just before the pandemic, which was a late anthology of early music, which was, I mean, it, it was already a, a kind of science fiction endeavor. Tell us a bit about the creation of that. Early 2018, I'd been reading online about Databots, which is a duo of two guys, CJ and Zach, who had been using machine learning, and I use the ter terms uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence interchangeably, but in reality, machine learning is sort of like a subset of, of AI. But they had been using um, machine learning to uh, generate math rock albums, and then they went on to do a project where they did a YouTube stream that's a continuous uh, technical death metal live stream that's generated live by AI and a lot of interesting projects. And I contacted them and just said, hey, your work looks really interesting. And they wrote back and said, hey, do you want to do a collaboration? You know, we see you're a vocalist. So I sent them a lot of uh, recordings of my voice, just a cappella, just my voice and nothing else. And then they took all those recordings and they trained uh, a neural network on those recordings and that neural network spat out over 800 files. So from the very first file, when it was the machine learning equivalent of a baby who doesn't quite know how to speak right up to, you know, fully developed, I don't know, adult, adult file where you could, you know, you could hear details in the, in the file that were my voice. And I sort of took those files and I mapped them on to the history of Western music, the early history from ancient Greece up until the end of the Renaissance. And I sort of made very weird cover versions of Gregorian chant and Hildegard von Bingen and Dowland and Palestrina and people like that 
as a way to sort of question how we make a canon, how we make an anthology, why we say this is the piece of music that you should learn, you know, these are the most quote unquote important or significant pieces of music. So it was sort of playing with lots of those ideas. And you'd actually put that uh, on Spotify using the sort of the, the original titles of the music in which it had been fed on. So to, to sort of provoke maybe a confusion for people who, who were trying to find Dowland or Hildegard von Bingen. Oh, oh, definitely. Because the other thing I should say is like the, the companies that make the educational textbooks for university courses on music, they make decisions that affect, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of music students lives. So if they make a textbook and they choose a certain group of pieces and they say these are representative of the history of Western music. Um, when students take those classes, they think, oh, yes, this is what, you know, these are the most important pieces. Um, and a lot of those decisions, even when you're teaching those classes, you're quite unsure about some of the decisions they came to or why they picked this repertoire rather than that repertoire. And, you know, a lot of it probably has to do with publishing rights or, you know, recording companies. Or, you know, there's there's considerations that are far beyond whether the music is important or not. So I wanted to play with that. So I liked the idea very much that some poor, unsuspecting student you know, who had to study for a drop the needle style quiz would by accident make a Spotify playlist with this, you know, bizarre garbled version of Dowland and it would sort of knock them out of their rush as they were studying. It wasn't at all your first kind of venture into AI. I mean, it's something that you've been that's come in and out of your work for quite a while. Oh, definitely. I'm completely fascinated by it. And that fascination is just simply because it right now you and I you know, I are speaking over Zoom and Zoom is a whole bunch of machine learning running on Zoom right now from filters to touch up my appearance to, you know, um, if what we were suggesting? able to switch on live. What I know, what am I suggesting? I really do have these these unicorn horns on my head. Uh, so so sort of machine learning is in everything that we do. It's in all of the technology we use every single day and it's steering our decisions and whether or not we're aware of it, it's nudging us towards certain outcomes, whether those be buying a certain handbag or voting for a certain candidate in an election. And um, it's also doing very interesting things in art um, you know, with data bots, I share a sort of a fascination for the idea that like machine learning can be a way to invent crazy new genres of music, you know, realize strange sounds that we could only imagine. And that can be something really exciting. And at the other end of the scale, you know, I would guess that probably a lot of people have recently watched a YouTube video, maybe by an influencer or something that had some of the music that was written by machine learning because it's cheaper to just sort of source an inspirational guitar track, you know, from a machine learning service and throw that in underneath than have to try and hunt down the, the person who made the music and talk about rights and talk about attribution and things like that. But when you're, you're using it at present, you're using it as a tool that a composer would use. I mean, you're not setting it free to, to create music your your decisions are still what's what's important there oh definitely I mean the thing is with these systems because I, I had one of the students in Venice said to me you know was I concerned that AI was going to take over the world and I said no I'm concerned that billionaires don't pay enough tax <laughs> and that you know their companies are coming to have massive massive control over our daily lives you know these systems 
they're usually very, very good at one thing. Like, you know, when DeepMind uh, made AlphaGo, which was the system that beat Lee Sodol, the world Go champion at Go, that was considered a massive technical achievement. But, you know, AlphaGo can't order a cab or make me a cheese sandwich. It can only play Go, and that's the only thing that it can do. So a lot of these systems, they're just being trained on a specific data set of material you know, and the they spit out outcomes. If they're trained using neural nets, we often aren't quite exactly sure why they made some of the decisions they made, which is exciting for artists, but not exciting um, if, for example, you're waiting on a parole board decision that's made by AI and you don't know why it denied you parole. Those, you know, those sort of things, they are human. They're designed by humans. They're trained on data sets which are um, edited and collated by humans. And the, the outputs are tweaked and chosen by humans. So we're, we're there at every single step. William Gibson, I think, is a writer that you're, you're very interested in. He has this notion that, you know, when we need to talk about our kind of contemporary reality, then these forms of science fiction kind of intervene. Like there's an interview that Gibson gave to the Paris Review where he talked about after 9-11, he talked about that he had been working on a sci-fi book. And when I say a sci-fi book, something classic sci-fi set in the future, set in a different you know world to the one we live in now. And after 9-11 happened, he was 100 or so pages into that novel. And he didn't write for a couple of weeks dealing with the aftermath of what had happened. But then he ripped it up and he said, it's not possible for me to write in the same way again, you know, because now the world has changed. and I have to sort of try and absorb that and integrate it into my worldview. And the three novels that he wrote after that were all set in the present day. And often, because I often buy one of them pattern recognition as a gift for friends, uh, you have to go into the fiction section, you know, of the bookshop to find it rather than the sci-fi section. And Gibson's sort of, those books were very interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that he's using those exact same tools that you do in a classic sci-fi novel, but he's applying them to the everyday. And I think that we live in a time right now that we need to apply those tools from sci-fi, like looking at culture through the lens of the technology, you know, that, that it runs on. Um, we need to use those tools right now. I think it's no surprise that you have writers who've never written what we would call a sci-fi novel now writing what I would call a sci-fi novel. So, for example, Jeanette Winterson writing Frankenstein, which is, you know, a book that's about, you know, transhumanism and AI and things like that. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of that. Um, Ian McEwan writing Machines Like Us. Um, so you're, you sort of see these writers who I've never seen dabble in sci-fi before now dabbling. And I'm thinking, yeah, because, the you know, in order to talk about what it's like to be alive right now, we have to talk about technology. So in, in your new position, and congratulations on your new position, I guess would be starting with programming for students. I mean, th their introduction to technology is maybe as important as their introduction to the history of uh, improvisation or even Western music. I think for me, the most important thing is to all be in the room together and making sound. And I think that is absolutely core is just getting everybody in the same room. And so wherever I've taught, that's been key to what I do. But I also think like the younger generation or generations or generations and half generations, it seems like generations happen much more quickly now. You don't have to wait 25 years for one to come along. There's one every seven and a half years or so. But 
one of the things I think is really interesting is they've grown up native to these technologies. So often when you bring them up in the classroom, they really want to deal with it. They want to discuss it because it's part of the, the air they've breathed since they were children. So um, it's really fun to to be able to sort of view music, not as some abstract combination of frequencies, but also as something that's living and breathing in a culture and that it's changing all the time. And even the music that was written 100 or 500 years ago is changing, you know, within the culture that we live in now and the way we think about it and perform it um, is changing. So that's what makes it really, really exciting. And and I'm really, you know, I'm excited to to sort of dig into a lot of that at Oxford. You talked about uh, Meredith Monk as one of your sort of uh, germinal influences. And as somebody who kind of could negotiate this kind of passing between uh, sort of fine art and music. Well, I certainly don't think I'm a pioneer in that, you know, there's been loads of people before me like Meredith Monk. um, But also I would say Tony Conrad, who was a really close collaborator of mine. You know, Tony was making film, was doing musical performances, you know, was doing public access television, homework helplines, you know, was writing books, was doing all of these different things. And and in a way, it's sort of it feels really old school because it's like being a renaissance, you know, sort of a renaissance person where, you know, you, you're interested in lots of different things. And, and I definitely think, you know, we're more used to the idea of an artist who does lots of different things and works in lots of different mediums. Um, we're a little less used to that in music, but I'm lucky in that, you know, uh, having having seen the work of people like Laurie Anderson or Meredith Monk. Um, having known Tony very well and sort of also from a logistical standpoint, watching how he had to, you know, it's different to negotiate contracts in the music world than it is to negotiate contracts in the art world. You know, there's different things you have to think about. So um, the most important thing is just it's trying to have the patience to figure out what is the right way to make the piece so that the piece makes sense. So it's being open to the fact that sometimes the piece maybe makes more sense as a book or makes more sense as an album or makes more sense as a performance and just trying to have the patience and then having to always learn a lot because you're you're working in different media and you're trying different things. I mean, it's not exactly that that you're a new arrival in the academy, like you have been working with students for a long time. But I wonder, does it signify a particular moment in, in contemporary music that somebody like you who has as, as strong a record in, in fine art or, or in visual art or as in music now is in charge of composition or is, uh, is speaking from the chair of composition? The response that people had to the appointment that I've seen on social media or just, you know, in conversation with people has been very much that it seems significant that an institution like with this, like Oxford has this huge history attached to it. It has a certain image attached to it. So the idea that that their notion of composition is something that they want to expand. They want somebody who's interested in uh, free improvisation and uh, performance and video and AI. That signifies a shift because certainly, you know, I, I taught at Brunel University and I've been for the last three years, I've been teaching at the University of Music and the Performing Arts in Stuttgart. Uh, they were all institutions that were open, you know, open to, to sort of opening up the definition you know, it's got a reputation attached to it that the most of the people who've taught there up to now have not taught the sort of work that I do. So I think my attitude was, 
either they'll want me for me, you know, and I have to be a hundred percent me. I, I, if in fact, if I'm not a hundred percent me, I'm in big trouble because if they don't hire me for me, then, you know, everybody, it'll all end in tears for every single person involved, including me. I guess it also influences the type of students who will want to be there. My sort of experience, you know, as a student was that the best sort of teachers are the teachers who teach students regardless of, you know, what, what sort of aesthetic they're interested in. They're open, but also that they nudge people to sort of enrich their, their vision of what could happen. So my teachers, you know, like I think of like Amnon Volman, who is one of my most important teachers, you know, his attitude was very much like you have a certain aesthetic that you are interested in doing that is you. We have to figure out how you feel comfortable doing that. But I'm going to expose you to a lot of different stuff along the way so that you're always being challenged. And I do think that a lot of composers now have grown up, you know, they grew up with YouTube. Their, their way, they have a visual, a very visual um, understanding of what music is because they watch documentations all the time rather than listen to CDs. And a lot of young composers, when they Google composers, they don't Google them. They go to YouTube and search for them in YouTube and they'll happily watch a terrible recording, but that it's a documentation of a performance. They prefer to watch that than listen to a SoundCloud track because, you know, they like to see what's happening in the piece. So I definitely think it's not just me. It's also a lot of other composers interested um, in dabbling in this and some of them going deep and some of them just trying things out. Do you know what it'll involve there? I mean, I guess you will have a cohort of PhD students. Are you required to give lectures at all? Or You give a certain, my understanding so far is, is you give a certain number of lectures. Um, you, of course, you work with masters and PhD students. So I look forward to, you know, having a group of students that will probably grow over a couple of years. Uh, and then it's working with undergrads, you know, and doing tutorials and things like that. So um, it's quite wide. What's very exciting about Oxford is they want you to teach from your research. So essentially teach from where from what you're interested in and you're excited about. So that's great because I get to sort of I get to teach the things that I really love and I'm excited about the tutorial system because that's quite rigorous means that you can sort of you can you can get students to be really, you know, trying things out on a regular basis, like working, working at ideas in, in those sort of intense term times. So I'm looking forward to that, too. Your creative work involves an awful lot of the research process. I mean, you know, an incredible amount of interviews as well as computer programming and technological innovation. All that. Well, I, I'm just interested in stuff. And I think I also, when I was younger, I had a lot of mentors and I, and they were always reading books. They always were following strange wild goose chases about certain things. Um, and it all got synthesized into the work in strange ways. So if you're a composer, you know, my research is writing my pieces. It's not research in the sense of, you know, discovering um, how to make a drill that's silent so that dentists can use it. So I, I'm lucky in that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, my, my research is just, you know, can I make a fictional archive of Irish avant-garde music? You know, that, that's my, my research. So I think when you're, when you're a musician and you work in this way, the the classroom is really really a fun place because it's a lab where you can try out a lot of ideas but they're they're performative ideas or they're creative ideas you know where you say to the students okay I want you to go away and I want you to try and make a recording of your you know 
five most favorite sounds that are in the city. And then I want you to come back and then you're going to swap them with other students and you're going to start to build a piece out of them. And then we sort of all work together and it's it's a very active space. And a lot of questions and a lot of issues arise from that process that lead to discussions about architecture or infrastructure or materials in built used in buildings or memory or colonialism or you know uh, city design. So so it's sort of but it all unfurls out from making at the core. You're very um, intensely programmed now, but uh, when will people next get to see, hear, experience you in Ireland? Well, I'm really excited because a piece that we just did the premiere of about two weeks ago in Oslo uh, with Andreas Beauregard and the Oslo Sinfonietta uh, will be performed in Ireland in April as part of New Music Dublin. And Aideen Cosgrove, who is an amazing, amazing artist, one of the founders of Pan Pan Theatre, she did the lighting and costuming and stage design for it. So it's a very, very vivid we have a gold floor in the piece. Uh, it's a very vivid, colourful piece where Andreas does an eight minute, one of the most virtuosic things I've ever seen somebody do, an eight minute monologue about Britney Spears where physically he embodies every magazine cover. I'm very excited. It's it's always wonderful when you do these projects and you know that they're going to come home and that, you know, the uh, audiences at home will see them. So um, I'm really, I'm really happy. It's called Personhood. Oh, that sounds great. But he doesn't play any accordion in it then? He no. does. He plays a little bit right. of accordion, but okay. mostly he's, he's doing a lot of physical stuff because he wanted me to write him a piece that would really, really push him. Had you written a piece before? He was at New Music Dublin a couple of years back, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. In fact, my family in Ireland, my parents, the last live concert that they saw before the lockdown began, before the pandemic began, was Andreas in the concert hall doing another piece I wrote for him called Self-Care. It became a big word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which became an important word and concept <laughs> and philosophy. <laughs> you know, definitely. Jennifer Walsh there, and there's no dates yet for New Music Dublin 2022, but keep an eye on newmusicdublin.ie for details. Meanwhile, why not follow Culture File on your favourite podcast platform for all Jennifer Walsh's contributions to the programme and many other treats. And while you're clicking, why not follow us on all your favourite social media platforms, say Twitter, for instance, at Culture File Pod.